Welcome to the June Conservative Women's Network. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women, and it's great to see you all. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation, Heritage Vice President Bridget Wagner for this wonderful 23-year partnership. We started in 1999. Co-hosting today is Mary. Where's Mary? Mary from Heritage? Well, she's probably out working, but it's good to be with Mary. I'm pleased to introduce today's panel on how to have a great Washington career. First, Brenda will speak, then Alexa, then Carrie Severino. Brenda is the Assistant Director and Senior Policy Analyst at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. She has extensive experience in the field of research and writing for publications. She's going to talk about the career of being a researcher. She's written many, many articles that have appeared in many publications, including Real Clear Public, Public Affairs, The Federalist, The Hill, Washington Examiner, The National Interest, Law and Liberty, and Modern Age, to name a few. Brenda holds a BA in Political Science, a BA in Finance, and a Master's in Political Science all from Villanova University, and she lives in Alexandria. Next will be Alexa Walker, who will speak about the career uh, area of building coalitions. Alexa is the Director of Coalitions and Member Services at the Republican Study Committee, one of the oldest caucuses in the House of Representatives. And she serves uh, currently under Chairman Jim Banks, who's from Indiana's 3rd Congressional District. Alexa leads the caucus strategic outreach and manages communication to and coordination with the coalition allies. Additionally, she serves as a senior advisor to members of the caucus. Alexa holds a BA in International Relations, Intercultural Communication, and Spanish from Boise State University in Idaho and is a native of Portland, Oregon. Carrie will be our third speaker, and she'll be speaking about legal careers. Carrie is the president of the Judicial Crisis Network and co-author with Molly Hemingway of the best-selling book, Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Court. She's an expert on judicial issues. We've all seen her on TV, all the stations, the good and the bad. She served as a law clerk to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and to Judge David Santel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Carries a Juris Doctor Law degree, is from Harvard University. She has a BA in biology from Duke University and holds a master's in linguistics from Michigan State University. And after our three speakers are finished, we'll have a Q&A and a discussion time. So please join me in welcoming today's panel, How to Have a Great Washington Career. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be here today, and thank you all for joining our discussion. So um, she did talk a little bit about my personal background, but I wanted to give you a sense of my background because that will help you in determining whether or not something that I do is a good fit for you. So before joining Heritage, I was a director at the Fund for American Studies, where I was really engaging in programming and designing curriculum to teach the principles of limited government and republicanism. And prior to that at Villanova, I worked for the Matthew J. Ryan Center, which had a similar mission, and I was the assistant director there. So in my career, I made a rather significant pivot from doing programming to what I'm doing now, which is a blend of research public speaking, as well as joining in podcasts and doing media hits. And I would say most of my time is spent in research and writing, though not exclusively, as I mentioned. So if that's something that interests you, a job like mine might be a good fit for you. And the best advice I received from someone in thinking through my career when I was at that stage of I want to pivot from something that's more interesting to me. She said to me, think of someone who has a job that you say, I would like that job. That is something that I would really enjoy doing. 
And actually, it was the job that I have now. So I'm very fortunate and lucky to be in the position that I have. But when thinking through that, think of the job that they have. And if possible, reach out to that person and say, hey, could I chat with you about how you got to where you are? And also think through what are the skills that that person has and that that job requires? And how do I develop those skills in myself so that when that job comes up, I'm prepared to make a case for why I would be a good fit. In my personal circumstance, that meant writing and publishing. So when the job became available, I wasn't just saying to the person, hey, I'm a good writer. I was able to demonstrate and prove that because I had a portfolio of publications already under my belt. So the best advice I can offer for Figuring out whether or not research is the right fit for you is to actually do it. Try conducting research for an op-ed and actually getting an op-ed published. And that will give you a sense very soon of, is this work that I would enjoy or do I really hate this kind of job and I would rather not do it? And either answer is, of course, okay. <clears throat> and for the research and writing area. What it requires, research requires experience because it requires that prudential judgment of I need to actually stop researching because I've gone down the rabbit hole too much and this is not the best use of my time and getting a sense for that just requires doing it and more experience. And the writing process when you read someone who is a beautiful writer, I want to emphasize that for very, very few people does that come naturally. It is the result of countless hours of very hard work where you produce a draft and then you edit and you edit and then you step away and you come back to it and you edit again. And then you send it to someone, an editor who gives you pointers and then you get another draft. By the time all is said and done, I would say that I often have seven drafts for a single op-ed. I have gone through the editing process so much that I've almost memorized those 750 words. Because when you only have 750 words, every word counts. So you need to be very deliberate about choosing those words. And the other part of that in learning how to be a good writer is reading. So a friend of mine once told me a story. I love Jane Austen. Whenever, whenever possible, I write about Jane Austen. And he told me a story that when he went to college, one of his professors said to him very bluntly, you are a terrible writer. And what you need to do is you need to read Jane Austen. And you need to read it out loud to yourself. Because becoming a good writer a lot of that is reading people who are good writers and trying to get a sense of their style. So again, there's a lot of work that comes into becoming a good writer, and part of that work is just being a good reader. So another aspect of determining whether or not research is the right fit for you is your personality. Are you introverted or are you extroverted? My job is not a purely researching role. I'm not always sitting in my office reading and writing. I'm public, giving public talks and doing podcasts. And that's based on my personality of introvert versus extrovert and where do I fall on that scale. So ask yourself that. Would you be happier just doing research or would you prefer a mix of those different things? And that also involves of how much do you want to be in front of people? How comfortable are you with public speaking? And again, I want to emphasize that a lot of that has to do with practice. No one or very few people are good public speakers right off of the bat. You have to put in the work, and the more you do it, the more comfortable you will become in doing it. And finally, since this panel is on how to have a great Washington career, I would advise to you to think of your career in the context of your overall life. And what is the trajectory of the life that you want, and how does your career fit into that? So one question would simply be, do you want to live in Washington, D.C.? 
Is that something that would make you happy? What kind of work-life balance would you enjoy? Do you want to have a family someday? And how does that inform your career choices and vice versa? And then I would also ask, emphasize to you to ask these questions, but know that that can change over time and that it is possible to pivot in your career as I did. So don't give yourself undue pressure of the decision I make right now at 20 is going to set the trajectory for my entire life. That is not the case. But at the same time, I think it is good to check yourself periodically and ask yourself, am I happy in the role that I have now? Is this the best best fit for me right now and for the trajectory I would want of my life and make reasonable choices and ask yourself that on a continual basis. And finally, my best advice in thinking about work is not to only think about yourself and the skills that you possess, but also how you can contribute. Thinking about your career in terms of a vocation what is it that I can give to something higher than myself? Because ultimately, that is something that will make you the happiest in the fullest sense of happiness. And the work that I do, for example, drives me because I love my country and because I want to do something to contribute to that and believe that the skills that I have enable me to do that in a certain way for me personally. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Michelle, and um, good afternoon, ladies, and thank you to our great hosts at the Heritage Foundation. And you probably don't know this, but um, great natural coalitions like the one that your organization has with the Heritage Foundation um, 10 years ago, I actually, during my summer internship, attended one of these sessions that you hosted um, and was inspired by the women who spoke um, and in the investment that they were interested in making in young conservative women. So maybe 10 years from now or sooner, you can be up here speaking. So thank you so much for joining today. I was asked to talk a little bit about my work um, in building coalitions. Um, I had a what I would say is a non-traditional trajectory coming uh, to work on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Um, I was interested in working in international affairs. Um, I considered Washington to be a wonderful city um, full of people from all around the world. It's a very international city. Um, as the more you spend time here, there's people from all over with amazing stories who are very interested in um, making positive change. But um, my trajectory was thrown off a little bit when I didn't get the internship that I was hoping to get, but I had a wonderful opportunity and took some great advice um, to take an internship on Capitol Hill, um, and that's sort of how I got started. The office that I was in worked with a lot of different members. Um, they worked on, the member that I worked for at the time worked on a lot of different issues, and so I caught sort of that spark or um, that bug and that little passion inside me to want to come back to Washington and work with as many people and learn about as many different issue areas as I possibly could. Um, I started on Capitol Hill as a scheduler um, and then found my way um, working for uh, the member that started as the chairman of the Republican Study Committee and had an opportunity to go work as the director of coalitions. Um, and just a little bit about um, the coalition world, I think everyone can build coalitions. Um, it's not something that's particularly unique, um, although I do love the coalition world because I get to work with so many wonderful, brilliant people, um, but everyone can be a coalition builder. And I'll just unpack a little bit some of my day-to-day -day just to give you an idea of what I do that's very specific and focused on coalitions, but one that I think can be applied to um, even what you're doing now, because um, it's, I think, a long-term investment as well. So to start off, you can work in coalitions no matter where you are, um, no matter your role. Um, there are two different ways I think about coalitions. I think of permanent coalitions, one that are ongoing, you know, ones that have, I spend a lot of time in regular meetings each week, and it's 
um, a defined group of people working sort of over a long-term trajectory to reach a goal. And then there are pop-up coalitions. Um, oftentimes in Washington, as you may know, there's a new piece of legislation that people have very different opinions on, uh, particularly um, with the current administration that we have. And it's been a great opportunity for conservatives to step up and make their voice heard and rally together around a different position that they would like to see because they believe that it's better for the American people. Um, joining a coalition, um, I constantly am thinking about how can I join new coalitions, not just for myself and the work that I do, but the work that I can contribute to the member that I work for and the many members that I work for, um, because coalition is your presence and you can't be part of a coalition if you're not present, um, which can sometimes be hard. I'm an introvert, and it took a long time for me to not be afraid to ask, you know, hey, is this something that I can be a part of? Or, uh, you know, I started a lot of just being there, being present, learning, listening to other people who had been in sort of these different coalition groups for a long period of time. And then over time, you get opportunities to weigh in and reflect the goals of your organization and ask questions that can help advance the goals that you have all aligned together to achieve. Um, the fun part about coalitions is, again, it's very varied. They're issue-specific coalitions. Um, so I'm a part of a coalition that focuses on education policy, which is a wonderful group to be a part of. If you're tracking what's going on, some of you may, may look at different education policy in the states, and there's been a bright new movement um, to invest in school choice. And so that's been a wonderful group to be a part of. Um, there can also be topic-specific coalitions, again, that are focused for a short period of time, maybe pushing back on a piece of legislation or pushing for a piece of legislation. Um, and then what I like to call the movement-wide coalitions. These are the rooms where we hope to see you know, all of the different pieces of the conservative movement reflected, whether those are on economic issues or social issues, because at the end of the day, they all overlap and they all align in some piece. And again, that's one of my favorite parts about working in the coalition sphere is people may have a very specific focused um, contribution that they want to make to advancing those goals. But in the end, you do have to, to be successful, see where it aligns across the conservative movement. Um, another one of the pieces of building coalitions is it's really about people. You know, I think there's a lot of different layers of policy and messaging and different organizations that maybe have slightly different interpretations of the goal or um, different contributions that they can make, but it's really about people. And I always think of when I go into a room, you know, I want to make sure that I'm being respectful, even if I don't have the same opinions as someone else or my organization that I'm representing may have a slightly different view. And Sometimes those are passionate views. You know, we're all here for the most part because we're trying to do the best for our country. And as Brenda mentioned, it is a higher calling and we do have a higher purpose for the people who, whose lives, you know, we may affect that we may never meet. Um, and so I always keep that at front of mind of treating people with respect and you never know what room you're in and whether that's, you know, I'm sitting in a particular meeting or I'm, you know, talking to my friends after work. You know, I'm always aware of my surroundings. That's that's just a good general practice for those of us who work on Capitol Hill because whether you realize it or not, you are representing probably someone else in that capacity. Um, I also really love to think through the different layers of coalition building. You know, who are the leaders and what are they contributing to as we build a coalition? Who are the participants in your coalition? And what audience are you speaking to? Is it someone who agrees with the issue or the piece of legislation or the topic that you're trying to push? Or is this new to them? Are you really investing in educating people as part of building this coalition? And then, of course, outside of the sphere that you're working in, you know, oftentimes conservatives find themselves maybe in a sort of smaller group of people. Um, we're, you know, a mighty but small group sometimes, and so we have to be cognizant of the people who are outside of that coalition. Um, both keeping in mind, you know, I like to think there are people who probably at the end of the day who are not going to agree with us, but there's probably someone, because I found myself in this position many times, who'd never heard what we were trying to advance through the goals of our coalition, and so that's just something to keep in mind. Um, 
One other piece of coalition building that is really important to me is that I always try to think, you know, whether it's a meeting that I'm in or a project that I'm working on with my office or our staff or a coalition that I'm working to invest in and I'm working with a lot of other people is what are you building, what are you creating that outlasts you? I think a lot of times in a city that's so transient that, you know, there's a lot of turnover in different positions. Sometimes people have great contributions, but where the where we may be lacking sometimes is what are we doing to make sure that a coalition doesn't necessarily revolve around one particular person or one particular person's idea at that moment and that it outlasts and the goals and the accomplishments outlast a particular individual. So some questions I like to ask myself is, who are you including in that coalition? You know, we try to make sure we're including experts who are probably going to stay, you know, maybe researchers, um, you know, legal experts who are going to stay in that field for a long time, who have the institutional knowledge that if there's other turnover, you know, they can provide a piece of that. Um, are you including people that can help you think of the um, short and long-term messaging goals? Because that's always very important. Um, what are your action items? I'm sure as your time in Washington, you may sit in some meetings and hear a lot of great things and then walk away and go, okay, well, what's next? What's the purpose of that? And so I always try to think in the back of my head, even if it's something that's not built into a room that I'm in, ask good questions, ask good questions. What's the purpose of that? What do you hope to accomplish? Um, because those are all things, again, that are contributing to moving the ball forward. Um, and then lastly, what's your follow through in your long game? Again, so what are you creating that outlasts you? You may have a pop-up coalition that you hope to you know, push back on a particular piece of legislation, but how does that build into your overall goal and trajectory? What is your takeaway from that? What do you want the people who you connected with through that coalition to bring back to your overall goals? Because each organization, again, has, you know, what, what do you want to accomplish 10 years from now? What is your hope? I think sometimes conservatives, we maybe don't ask that enough. We're, you know, we're fighting a lot of battles on the front lines and, you know, there's a 30 front war, but we don't always ask creatively, you know, what is our vision for America 10, 20 years from now? And so that's something I always try to keep in the back of my mind. And I'll leave you with um, just one thing that is sort of my personal motto for my time on the Hill and for building coalitions. And it's sort of five pieces that I try to strive for that most of these are good ideas and recommendations and advice I got from other strong leaders. So my goal is to work to the best of my ability striving for excellence, not perfection, with the resources that I have, and I have to remind myself to be really creative in that because we oftentimes have more resources than we think we have, in the place that where I am planted, staying true to my values while also elevating other people and helping them see the best in themselves. So I will leave you with that and um, I'll turn it over to Carrie. Okay, so I'm here to talk to you about having a great legal career in Washington, um, but it's a little bit awkward because, to be honest, my first piece of advice on this topic is generally don't. <laughs> um, I, I went most of the time when young women come to me with advice about going to law school, my, my advice is stop and think whether this is really something that you want to do. And it's not because I, I, I have found a lot of really great things I was able to do with law. I chose law. I was originally pre-med, um, hence the BA in biology, um, because I, I, I realized that medicine, I, I wanted to I was hoping to get married and have a family. And I realized medicine kind of is, takes a, has a very long time frame in school, costs a lot of money, and then you and then you know by the time you're into your career, also has a very all-consuming career. And I thought well, that's not going to be compatible. I thought law would be a little more. First, I wanted to go academia. That was the um, that was the linguistics part of it. Um, and then I thought, well, I'll just teach law. That has a little more practical application. Um, but law has a lot of the same challenges that medicine did, which is why I chose not to do it. You have to recognize if you want to go to law school that this is not something that oh, I just need a degree and let's like get something because this is a degree that will cost you. Maybe a hundred thousand dollars easily, right? And three years of your life, which is not peanuts. You know, those could be three years spent learning something else, doing another career. If if by the time you graduate from college, you already know, okay, this is a person I want to spend my life with. It's three years of starting your family and moving forward in that. So 
consider carefully, is this really a direction that makes sense for my life? Um, law, it, it, part of the reason I think law is a challenging career to get into is because law firms, tend, most law, firm, law schools are kind of set up to send you to work at a law firm. And the pricing is, that's baked in is, is part of that. They expect that you're going to go out and earn a big ticket salary and then um, be able to pay those bills back. The problem is, what if you don't want to work in that law firm system? And I would say no human being, male or female, should probably want to work in the law firm system as it is right now. My, my husband works in Heritage and decided to come to listen to the talk. He chose not to work in a big law firm because it's it's a miserable kind of existence for the most part. Um, it's it, you know I, I have a friend when I was when I was clerking after law school, um, and she had worked in a law firm, and I I. Uh, met her. We both had young kids at the time. Our oldest, Ellie, was was a toddler. We went, to, she she was working part-time at a law firm. You know what part-time at a law firm is? That's billing 40 hours a week. Billing 40 hours a week means probably working 50 hours a week. So just so you know, that's part-time. And it is legitimately part-time compared to what other lawyers are doing. We were at the, at the, at the zoo with our kids and it was her Friday off. She was supposed to work part-time only four days a week and then Fridays were off and she got a call partway through and the partner she worked for needed her for something. And so my memory was her leaving that zoo and her son going, but you promised I could have a hot dog. And I'm going, this was her day off. And it just broke my heart to see that. So there is my there, you know, pitch for why law firm life, I think, is horrible. So what you might want to do is, if you, if you do think law is something that's interesting to you, first of all, confirm that. Now, while you you have maybe some summers ahead of you to do internships, it's a good opportunity to actually get some work that helps you to see what is it a lawyer would really be doing. Um, is this the kind of thing that I find interesting? Um, one of the nice things about law is it does, you know, if you're whether you're an introvert, extrovert, I like some of the ideas of thinking through what what are the kinds of things I can do. There are a lot of different types of lawyers out there. So if you're an extrovert who loves getting out there and being in the battle, you might enjoy being in litigation where you're maybe kind of sparring with someone in, in depositions trying to you know, Perry Mason them into giving away something in a deposition or making arguments before a judge. Um, a lot of time is spent doing very detail-oriented research because a lot turns on very little details. You got to be willing to spend a lot of time hammering out the legal analysis so that it is logic that is absolutely rock solid. Um, so that kind of thinking, if that kind of thinking appeals to you, then a lot of types of litigation and, um, and appellate level litigation as well might be something that you're interested in as well, lots of research. Um, negotiations is a big part of law, whether you are in the litigation side and you're trying to come to a, a settlement with the, with the other party you're, you're at odds with, or whether you're doing deals and contracts and, and that kind of thing. Um, debate, obviously. Uh, giving counsel, and this is something that can come up a lot, in particular if you're in a law firm, or if you're if you're in-house rather than a law firm. That's a, that's an option that is less miserable than law firm life, in my experience, because um, you you're much more likely to have kind of a nine to five a bull job if you're working in-house at a. Um, a business or something. And then when you have a big case that comes up, like, oh my gosh, now we have to bring a big lawsuit, you hire outside counsel to do the kind of crazy exploding deadlines. You just have to stay up all night and do this right now because it has to happen types of things. Um, and then problem solving. So this is, I mean, there are, there are really fun things about legal thinking, and this is why I ended up going to law school. But I think if you, if you want to go in that way, you need to think, go, go into it knowing that how can I engineer this so it doesn't Make so I don't have the only option being now I have to spend the next you know three years in law school and then the next however many years paying off these bills and not have the flexibility to work where I want. I think a lot of you are probably here because you are interested and passionate about different issues, different policy areas. That can be a very rewarding way to practice law, and I found is one where people are often more likely to be more flexible. Where I work at the Judicial Crisis Network, they are one of the groups that I think was in the forefront of what's becoming more recognized now, which is that the flexibility that you can offer is a major bargaining chip and that there is a market failure when it comes to female lawyers. Because there's a lot of women who, like me, even have their law degree, have some, some experience, but then they wanted to be able to have time where they could spend with their family to be able to work from home or at least have a flexible options. Um, particularly post-COVID, that's becoming more realized. But even, even then, it was something that JCN recognized, hey, we want someone, in my case, they wanted someone who had a Supreme Court clerkship, but they know they couldn't afford someone, who a full-time worker, who had a Supreme Court clerkship. So what they were able to offer to me is, hey, you don't ever have to come in the office. And you know you don't need to do this, this, and this. You don't need to do all the fundraising or whatever. You don't need to do all these different things. But 
um, we want to be because we want to be able to kind of tap into your talents and your um, credentials when they count. And so that allowed them to be able to get for a for a bargain price. Um, and I when I was able to get a job where I was doing really interesting work, but on the on my own terms. So I I have done you know crazy you know I I end up doing less. I, I say I'm not a lawyer. I'm play one on TV. I do more media and talking to reporters and some of the op-ed writing and that kind of thing as well. Um, but I've been done. I've taken media calls from Costco. I've done TV hits from my kids' school parking lot. Um, you know, you can. You just have to be willing to think outside the box. And actually, there's a lot more things that are possible than you might think. Um, you know, when when Lucia was a baby, she was born right when the Obamacare cases were first happening, and there were important coalitions meetings bringing all these things together that were coming up. And I was like, well, I really need to go to this, but I have a two-week-old baby. And I said, well, these are. This is like some pro-family groups, whatever. I'm just going. I've got the baby in the sling, and I had you know stepped out to change her diaper when I needed to. And you can. So there, there are a lot. There's a lot of room for flexibility, and I would encourage you to think flexibly, you know, when you're looking at your career. Don't feel like you have to go down the specific line. When you're planning for going to law school, I would say to give yourself the most options and the most flexibility, the first thing you could do is study really hard, put yourself in the best position to, to choose where you want to go. It, when, you're, when you're going in, if you can have less debt, you will be have more flexibility afterwards. So when you're choosing between two schools, if you have like the 10th ranked school versus the 15th ranked school, but the 15th ranked school is giving you a, a big scholarship, go with the 15th ranked school. I mean, don't don't pick like, you know, University of Podunk over Harvard because they're giving you a scholarship necessarily because there is actually there's value in that in the networks you build and the name, but I think really kind of balance those things. If you can you can if you go to a state school and then you are at the top of your class, you might be equally competitive to someone who was in the middle of their class at an Ivy League, but you're going to want to work extra hard to knock it out of the park when you're at law school. Make those relationships, build those relationships with your professors, and maintain those because they're going to be your recommenders and your kind of networking entree into other uh, areas as well. Um, and then I'm just looking through my my other ideas. I think and then after you're out of law school, recognize that. Um, you have to be able to be able and willing to play things by ear as they as they come. So you don't have to do it all in the same order that everyone else does it. Um, you don't even have to go to law school in the same order that everyone else does it. I remember when I was in law school meeting a woman at some pro-life group we were at who was a lawyer, and she had like a bunch of kids. And I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. How did you do it? And she said, well, I actually went to law school after I had my kids. So she had her family, the kids are all in school, and then she went to law school. And that allowed her to follow the traditional legal path in a sense where she went to school and then she got the clerkships at a law firm and, and moved up in the normal order of things uh, that way. But she just did it maybe 10 years later than she otherwise would have. Um, other people go to law school, have taken time off, and then try to cultivate ways that you can re-enter the workforce. Um, one of them could be doing some research or, or speaking for a different issue organization that you're interested in um, or different things like that. I talked to one friend who um, said that she, because she had young children, had to pick between a job that would have been much more time intensive and doing some employment law work that she was just kind of felt a little more run of the mill, but um, was going to be what, what would allow her to have the more flexible time for her kids or more, you know, controllable schedule because a lot of law schedules, it's just kind of like you work when you have to work versus come in and leave and you know you can be home, you know, when your kids are home from school or something. Later on, she ended up becoming uh, the general counsel of the EEOC because she had that um, experience. Now, of course, now her children are older and she has grandchildren, um, but it was really interesting to hear her story of she said, what I thought at the time was a sacrifice I was making for my family actually ended up, and it was, but it ended up being the key to a really high-powered thing that she did later. You can't, you, you, you might maybe can do it all, but you can't do it all at once. You can't be president of the United States and president of the PTA at the same time. So, um, so be be flexible and think of what do you want to do when. Some other interesting solutions I have found that made and and obviously you know not all of you here might be heading for getting married and having kids, but I'm, I'm maybe that's maybe that's my bias. So I'm, I I feel like that's what a lot of women are interested in trying to figure out how to fit. But this can work if you're if you're just thinking of how's what's a you know what's a life friendly options too. I know people who have. Um, worked at law firms under similar kinds of interesting organization uh, situations where they're working um, of, of counsel rather than a regular job, but they could work at night. One friend homeschooled her kids during the day and then just did, did contract work. So she wasn't full time, but she was able to 
be brought in on um, you know some of the bigger cases. And in her case, it's like, hey, I've got a Harvard Law degree in the middle of St. Louis. They want me, but but they're they're kind of a boutique firm, and they just want to be able to pull me in on on cases where they need that extra lawyer as well. So it worked really well. Um, I know that there's some people who have found that job sharing works really well. I have a couple friends who worked for the the Chamber of Commerce, and they took what was supposed to be one position, and they they kind of pitched it to them and said, hey. What if we what if we job share this? Like, what if she handles domestic litigation? I handle um, I don't even know what the other one was. Anyway, no one one was appellate and one was um, was district court litigation, but something like that. And then they were able to kind of cover each other. Or another friend who proposed to their law firm, "Hey, I'm about to go on maternity leave. I have a friend who's about to come off of maternity leave. Why don't we kind of team up on this on this uh, litigation that's going on. And she said, actually, the, the client liked it even better because they loved being able to say they had a higher number of women staffed on this job, on this task anyway. So the law firm um, was able to trade out one partner for the other in a, in a way that made, made sense for them. Um, so I think uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that because I know there'll be a lot of questions. But, you know, plan ahead, think outside the box. And I think there's a lot of interesting things you can do. But consider law not necessarily having to be one of them either. Thank you. What a lot of great advice from three extraordinary professional ladies. Research, coalitions, and legal. Most of you are undergrads, a couple of you are out, but I would echo what some of the ladies said about flexibility at this point in your life. Get as broad an education as you can explore as much as you can in undergrad. Um, believe it or not, my degree was in psychology. But it was at a school where you got teacher certification. And my father was old school. He said, look, you're going to college. I want you to be able to get a job when you get out. So I taught briefly and decided God didn't make me a teacher. <laughs> Too many uh, children in a small room. Although what we do at Clearwood Luce is teaching as well. But um, be flexible. I came to Washington after that, uh, got into the policy world to the disappointment of my father because teachers and nurses are what girls did back then. This is back in the 70s. And then I put myself through law school at night here. You can do that if you don't have anybody to help you and you don't want to have giant loans. Back in the old days, I went to American University School of Law. It was 5000 a year over four years. Um, and I could, between my husband and I, we, we could pay that uh, for the most part. Uh, but, um, and I practiced briefly, bankruptcy, 1980, we had a new bankruptcy law. I, I loved it. But then President Reagan was elected. What to do? Try to join the Reagan administration or be a lawyer. I mean, we need good lawyers. It wasn't hard. So I joined the Reagan administration and then stayed for Bush. And then I thought about going back to practice. Um, but I, I felt a calling to start an organization to promote conservative women and help young women become leaders. So I sure was flexible, wasn't I? For somebody with a psych degree and a teaching certification. Um, and you have to do what's in your heart. The other two little other pieces of advice I'd give you to add to the wonderful advice I'd given. Probably for most of you, the most important decision you're going to make in the next 50 years in your life, you know what it is. What is it? Those of you who've been with me. Yes. Who you marry. You want to marry somebody where you're going to have a wonderful life together, share things, help each other. Um, I always say it's not easy, but it's good. Have a, have a good marriage. Um, and the other thing, the other bit of advice, and then I'll go to questions, sorry, is Somebody told me way, way in the beginning, don't ever assume anything's going to be easy. Assume that the major things you do are really hard, and you have to work really hard at them. And it's, it's a head thing. It's an attitude. You go into a job thinking, I am going to do everything I can to help this organization or this person I'm working for, as well as to grow myself. And then occasionally, something is easy, and it's such a wonderful treat. But you have to look at it as, I am going to work the hardest I possibly can to be uh, successful in this position. So that's the end of my advice. Um, we have some time for questions. Lindsay has a uh, uh, microphone. If you wouldn't mind, if you give your name, uh, affiliation, if you have one, if you're in school, uh, to say where you're going to school. I see one lady waving her hand here. <laughs> Thank you. 
Hello, I'm Elena Subio-Melkert. I'm the president of Energia Consulting LLC, um, an energy, oil and gas, uh, exploration production uh, support company, I guess we would say. And um, I don't have a question, but I have a comment, and hopefully you all will respond. Um, I had a very long career, 40 years in the oil and gas business, and I still haven't left. I guess I haven't figured out retirement yet. But the, the question I have has to do with resilience. We strive for excellence, not perfection, and we want to work really, really hard. But sometimes things don't go the way you want. And would you comment on resilience as a leadership client? Which one? All of them. Anybody? Sure. I'll, I'll go first. I think Carrie hit the nail on the head, and the way she described it is adaptability, right, of not presuming that the path everyone has taken is the only path, but asking yourself, can I do this a little bit differently? And when something unexpected occurs, having that resilience to be able to adapt and say, I can find a new way of doing this and not to presume, well, I just got to know. And so there's the end of the road. I'll say as a, I've, I've worked on Capitol Hill for just short of a decade, and I think uh, you have to be resilient all the time if you're going to work in the political realm and in politics, um, because there's a lot of ups and downs. And one thing that was, I got some very good advice as a young staffer is um, the one of the ways that you can be most resilient, be adaptable, but also develop your own definition of how you filter information and how you weigh, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, because people always, obviously are going to give you their opinion a lot in this particular, in, in the city of Washington, um, but having some of my own filters that I, you know, pass in information through and the way that I, you know, again, weigh things is, was important to help me learn to be resilient in the ups and downs of Washington. One phrase I liked from a, a children's book that my kids enjoyed was, "You either you have a choice of you, to, you well you don't have the choice, but when you're when you're engaged in something you either win or you learn." And he was talking about a wrestling match, but it doesn't matter. Whatever whatever happens, maybe maybe you win, or but if you didn't win, then you learn. You might learn that I need to try a different strategy next time. You might learn that this is actually not the best battle to be fighting. Period. But you're gonna you're gonna learn something, and if you if you uh, take each thing is coming and not get discouraged about it. Um, another analogy I, I, I sort of like is um, video games. I have, we have this video game that's called Plants vs. Zombies where you have all these different levels and different kinds of zombies come at you and you're building towers to, to combat them. And I realized that each time a level, if each time you would level up, you'd like something worse would happen to you. So it's, a, it's this weird phenomenon where you're like, you're excited to level up, but it's actually what's going to happen is now you have the zombie that throws freeze things and freezes you. And now you're going to have the zombie that like throws fireballs. And the next one, you're going to have the zombie that steals some of your plants midway through, which I feel like is an analogy to what happens in my life. You're going along and you're like, oh, just kidding, the nanny's sick. Or just kidding, someone just threw up. Or actually, no, this, you know, this Supreme Court decision just came down a month earlier than you expected. And if you're playing a video game, you're like, you don't go, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. This is horrible. I'm just done. You're like, oh, okay. Uh, I got to figure out how to replant something there. I got to figure out. You, you, you. If you approach it as a, this is an opportunity, not a, this is the worst thing that ever happened, and now I'm, now everything is destroyed. Because the truth is, it's not. It's not the worst thing that ever happened, and it probably never will be the worst thing that ever happened. God willing. Um, but we're, you're all, all we can do, and it's, and if, if it doesn't work out because something crazy happened, it's not, not really. Don't take that fault on yourself because. Sometimes things happen that put you in a literally impossible situation. It's like, well, if I was meant to get to both this event and you know this thing, then my plane would have been canceled. So I just I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to do these two things. And so which one am I gonna do given the situation I have on hand? So I think sometimes when when I'm feeling really frustrated, just reminding myself like, oh, this means I just leveled up. <laughs> so now I have now I have to figure out how to master this next challenge. Yes. Hi, my name is Emma, and I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, my question is, is that I'm, I've talked to a lot of people, and a lot of the jobs that they hold or roles that they hold, um, they didn't even kind of know existed at the beginning of their career. So um, I know, like, a lot of my fellow interns and I have, like, these dream, like, dream jobs, but they're very much, like, long game jobs. So, like, in the meantime, in the beginning of our careers, what would your advice be of, like, 
you want to be in conservatism, you like a certain area, a certain policy, but you don't know exactly what role like you would have. Thank you. Okay. Okay, sure. Um, thank you, Emma. That's that's a great question. So it is the case that a lot of jobs you one don't know about or two don't even exist yet, right? Um, in this. Things are constantly innovating, and there are a lot of jobs, particularly in tech, but other areas as well, that we could not have foreseen that didn't exist when you were about to launch into your career, and what policy areas that will become urgent or that we could not have envisioned. I think transgenderism, right, is something that is a hot topic that a lot of people would not have foreseen 40 years ago when they were starting their careers. So again, being adaptable. But in the meantime, I would say, again, float that line of make good, good choices for you right now in your life and constantly check of, am I happy? Is this the right career for me? Is there something else I would like to be doing? And also inculcating skills in yourself along the way of most jobs are going to require good communication skills. They're going to, going to require you to be able to write and do those sorts of things. So there are, there are lots of skills that are transferable that you can make sure that you're developing for whatever career that you go into. Yeah, I'd absolutely echo Brenda in the transferable skills. I've had several different jobs um, before I did my role and focused on coalitions, and I really, really try to focus on making sure, again, you're, you're always going to have to write. You're always going to have to probably at some point learn how to speak in front of people so that there's just good basic things. But another piece, if you do have something that you're really interested in or a particular policy area, um, I got a good recommendation is find two different mentors, one that works in that area and one that doesn't. Um, I think that can help you build a little bit of a perspective. Um, your mentor who works in that area can probably give you really good advice on everything to read. That's my favorite thing to do if you know, I'm looking into something to get my hands and read, get my hands on and read everything I possibly can about that issue area, take good advice from them, but also have a mentor who doesn't work in that area to give you perspective and just advice on, because you're probably at some point going to have an opportunity to work in the area if you're working really hard and pushing that way. Um, and it's just good to have another person who can kind of help you weigh that. Um, I got into a position where I really wanted to work in communications, and I'm very thankful that I had a mentor who worked more in the policy space who could help me weigh that because I actually decided to take a different job after that job and not work in communications, and she helped me game out and kind of think through what I liked in that area but how I could apply it somewhere else. I definitely, I, I, I love the idea of, work on skills that are going to be important wherever you go. And writing is something that keeps on coming up. That, I have to say, when I've been hiring people, is kind of the number one thing of, like, you can, I, I feel like if you've got someone who's smart enough, they can learn a various different issue area. But I'm not, I'm not able to, I don't have the time and capacity to teach someone to write well. And that means, so that means being really critical of your own writing, not practicing it and editing it and going through that process, making sure you're really clear in your thought process, making sure you are brutal in cutting things out that you don't need, things like that. So honing your writing skills is, a, is an important thing for anything you're going to do, in my experience. And then the other one is relationships, because that's something that will carry you through all these different jobs, and in many cases is the way that you discover or invent a new position. Um, I, we've had people um, that we've hired that we didn't even know what they were going to be doing. Or in, in one case, I've got a woman who, who works with us who's like, the project she was working at, we just decided doesn't even make sense to do anymore. Like, it wasn't, it's not her fault. It's just like, yeah, this is actually not We don't even know what she's going to be doing next, but we know we want her to keep working for us because she's, in, and so it's, it's things like being someone who's a hard worker, being reliable, being someone who's kind and, and looking for ways to help others. That's going to help you build relationships. So if you're, if you're as an employee looking and seeing, oh, there's something that's not working. How can I make it work more efficiently, whether it's by helping my other colleagues or, you know, identifying, hey, could we, you know, even if it's as simple as, hey, if we move the printer over here, everyone could reach it better and it would be more good. But just what, wherever you see that something's 
you know, there's a way that you can help and, or, Hey, you know, it would be more, would be more helpful if I printed out your whole schedule so that you had it ready for the next week or something like that. Oh yeah, that would be really great. So if you're bringing value like that, it doesn't matter in what type of job it is. They're going to want to keep working with you. Um, and then just keep maintaining those relationships outside of your immediate workplace because kind of like having the, the mentor from the outside, then you're seeing what's going in other areas, trying to help connect people in those areas, not only in just a, a sort of crass like quid pro quo way now they're like oh now I owe you a favor because you helped me out here but it just builds those relationships and it gets you thinking creatively of oh okay I know this person and these two people would like actually you could have some synergy working together or how can I how can I help them achieve their goals is often going to in, in, in some way help you achieve yours as well and it will help you be ready and, and the person people are looking to when those new creative options um, pop up good uh Maybe if you'll just answer so we can get a couple more in before we wrap up here. Um, I'll pick Alexa. Uh, I know Alexa. So this is not a trick question, but I think a big part of a Washington career. Also, my name is Emma. I used to work on Capitol Hill, but now I work for a private company that does critical mineral project finance. Um, so we are all women that are either working or want to work in Washington and New York may be the city that never sleeps, but Washington is the news cycle that never ends and the issues that we're working on are important issues. So I guess how would you or how do you want to keep working on um, in your career going home at the end of the day? You know, we take our emails home, um, work, you know, with the digital age, work can never stop. So in other words, how do you practice saying no to work and yes to that life part of the balance? That's a great question. You know, and I think that that's uh, an area that I continue to grow in. Um, and I, I, I have grown in a lot and I continue to grow in, um, which I think is important to talk about for conservative women. You know, we don't all have it perfect, but growth is always a good thing. Um, I learned the hard way sometimes, but have worked really hard on creating boundaries. Boundaries are really important. Um, unless I have messed up my own schedule and I need to, I don't work on weekends. I have other things, you know, I'm involved in my church. I have an, other civic organizations that I'm involved with. Um, I have friends, I have family, and that is one of the boundaries that I have set for myself. Um, I really try hard to make sure that several nights a week, you know, I have work obligations with the particular role that I have, but that there's one night a week set aside for me to not work at all, to be at home, to go home at a reasonable hour, um, and I don't reply to emails after a certain point in the evening because I am not a heart surgeon, I'm not saving anyone's life, and I'm also not God. So, it, it, and I say that kind of a bit facetiously, but... Um, it's, it's going to be okay. Uh, we work really, really hard during the day. I work really hard during the day, but I have very clear boundaries on weekends and evenings, um, that I hold myself accountable to so I can be a good whole person. Cause if I'm a better whole person, I'm better at my work. Thank you. A couple more quick questions. Uh, select who you want to, uh, um, answer. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Nancy Linton. Um, I guess I'll, I don't know your name, but the, Carrie, okay. Um, I wanted to talk about transferable skills and also networking. I've worked in psychology and education for many years and also done education advocacy and political campaigning and ran for school board. And so I want to transition into policy work and so many of the skills, I, and I am a good writer, fortunately, so many of the skills I have are transferable, but when you apply for jobs, you apply into a big black hole. Um, so the jobs I've gotten in the past have been through networking. So, um, you know, for example, but cold call reaching out to someone to ask for 30 minutes of their time, you're probably not likely to get a response. So... Um, you know, obviously we go to things like this, we try to develop relationships, but what's a good way to try to transition into this field? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think networking is the most valuable way. When I've hired people, most of the people that have been really good hires have I have found through networking, um, rather than finding just, it's it's overwhelming looking at a pile of resumes and it's hard to judge some of the skills that are actually the most important. Um, I, I, I wish I had better, maybe maybe the two of you actually have better ideas than I do. I think I think meeting people and getting to know that, I think thinking thinking for yourself, what is a compelling story that I can tell? I think of things a lot of times in terms of messaging, because I do a lot of that on TV, like what is the story if I were um, I guess you've run for run for school, but if I were if I were running for this office, what's the story I would tell of like why I am a compelling person for this thing? Like, oh, I've I've spent X Y Z years doing psychology, and that's given me this added insight. And then I recognize this problem that's going on in the field that I want to address, um, so that it's a narrative. And I think that's um, really compelling. And even it, it might depending on the the format of how you're applying things, if you can tell that narrative in a compelling way, even in a cover letter, I think it might help pull you out of a pile. But to the extent that you can ever figure out, you know, who are the who are the people who might know someone within this organization I'm, I'm looking at or something, and how can I, um, is there someone I know who would know them, who might be able to introduce us, the, the, each, each step of the way, or even just meeting people and saying, hey, I, I, you, you got someone that might know you well and, and respect your work, but doesn't necessarily have contacts, but you just say, hey, would you mind just having coffee and help me think through who I might reach out to? And maybe you don't know that they know someone who would, or they know a second degree person who, who would know someone who knows an interesting person. So that in, then rather than asking that person for the ask yourself of like, hey, can you hire me? You're like, hey, can you give me advice and skills? And everyone likes being asked advice because it makes them feel like they know something, which they do. So you're, you'll gain something. And sometimes you'll find that maybe they actually do have somewhere that, that might be the right place. So even if, even if you're asking someone within that field, rather than straight up asking them for, hey, can I have a job at your institution? Like, hey, what? ask them about the strategy and then they can. Right, Good advice. Ideas. Okay, last question. And uh, then we'll speak informally together uh, once we uh, disband as a group. One more question. Oh, the gentleman in the back. <laughs> I think he's family. Yes, Roger Severino, Vice President at the Heritage Foundation. The question is for Carrie. It's nepotism. How important has it been to have a caring, supportive husband for you to achieve your family and, and career goals and... Uh, in terms of timing as well for marriage, uh, that's a softball. Um, no, I, I, well, I, I absolutely agree with what Michelle said. That is the, the most important decision you would make is the person that you marry. That's going to be the father of your children, God willing. That's going to be um, the person who has your back and all those things. And I think, you know, one of my pieces of advice is you can have, you can each have high-powered careers, but you can't have them at the same time. You need to have someone. You can't have two people who are, you know going crazy at full speed at, at the same time or something's something's going to get dropped and unfortunately the thing that will get probably dropped is is the children if you have children because and that's something that's a very temporary uh, thing I feel like my our oldest is only two years from leaving home and I can barely imagine you know it's, it, it, it it really is a blink of the eye so um so make that that decision well uh, that doesn't mean hold out for you know Superman to walk up and and get down on one knee because everyone all of us are you know, individuals with real challenges and problems, but make sure it's someone who has the requisite uh, character and and uh, faith and, um, you know, an understanding of what you're interested in, that they're going to be able and willing to support you in that, um, because otherwise I think you're going to, it's going to be very uh, frustrating and, um, uh, yeah, and that it, it, that will uh, not, not set you up for success in any way. So I, I would also remind people that, you know, the easiest time to meet someone is probably when you're in school. So this is a good time to, pri if, if you want to get married and have kids, it's a good time to prioritize that um, and not waste time with guys who are who are not worth your time and not really long-term prospects and, you know, move on until you until you can actually find someone who's going to be a good partner for you. So, Carrie, I got a good one too. Some of you know my husband, Ron Robinson, and uh, it's really a really key part of success in life for all of you girls who aren't there yet. Um, and uh, I just am so grateful to you three for excellent advice. 
Um, and I know they'll, you'll stay a bit if people want to talk with you a little bit more. Um, I know this construction, it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> it's like waiting to go to the dentist. <laughs> but you, you, congratulations, all there and your forbearance. It's, it's, it's right behind us, I think. But, um, yes, it's going to be so beautiful. This building is so beautiful as it is. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. Thank you, all who came. Uh, if you haven't had lunch, enjoy it. Uh, sit around and we'll talk together. And we'll see you next month. <laughs>